Hello and welcome to the Stringer Podcast number 49. Hey, happy Wednesday. Welcome to the Stringer's new home. That's right, we're back on Wednesday. Again, don't be mad. It's comfy here in the middle of the week. We're well padded by resting on pretty on Monday and Sportsville on Thursday. It's a good spot to be in. At least that's what I keep telling myself. We're lucky this week because we snagged a freaking awesome guest, and he's been a massive influence on my career. He's one of the first big Toronto writers to show me any love at all. You know, some 25-year-old, spiky-haired, punky, argyle, zippy-wearing kid hanging around Leafs practice. It feels like he survived every twist and turn in the this industry can throw at you, and he's always managed to do it with a smile. You know him as Sean Fitz underscore Gerald on Twitter. You know him as Sean Fitz underscore Gerald on Instagram. He's one you'd always call if you need an extra guy at Beer League on Friday nights. He's got one fit in the digital frontier and the other one on the bookshelf. He's the smoothest talking, storytelling, hockey-scribing media member with a lowest shampoo bill. That's a hair joke. It's Sean Fitzgerald. He's coming up shortly after I tell you about his book. Before the Lights Go Out is a love letter to a sport that's losing itself. Published by Penguin Random House, Fitzy writes of a year spent with the Peterborough Peets and interweaves the action of the season with portraits of public figures who've shaped the game. I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy and absolutely fell in love with his writing style, with this being his first book. If you want to pluck it off a shelf, you can go to Chapters Indigo. If you're more of a digital ordery person, Amazon's got it stocked. And of course, if you want the money to go right to the publisher, you know, the one that paid Sean to be able to do this for a year, you can just go to penguinrandomhouse.ca and order your own copy. But if freebies is more your thing, keep your eyes glued to our Twitter feed this week because we might just be hooking you up with a copy. But of course, before we can get to any of that, we must first chat about the weekend. So let's make it quick. Shall we? Friday, October 4th, Toronto Tequila Festival. Now we're talking. We're going to clear up a little bit of those sniffles, Dill. Sip it straight or mix it in a cocktail. No matter how you take your tequila, this night is for you. 5 p.m., things get underway at the Berkeley Castle. It is crawling distance from my condo, so you know I'll be there. 315 Queen Street East. Tickets are $20 in advance. They're $30 at the door, but you want to get them in advance, so you're going to go to tequilafestival.ca. Saturday, October 5th, Toronto Wolfpack versus Featherstone Rovers. They were good enough to give us a couple tickets for the office of any of us that wanted to go, so I promised them we'd give them a little bit of love. Wolfpack are looking to rise to the Super League in 2020, and the only thing that stands in their way is the Featherstone. Stone Rovers. This all-or-nothing match will not disappoint. 2.30 p.m., things get a little bit crazy. Lamport Stadium, 11.55 King Street West. Tickets start at $35, and you can find all the details by going to torontowolfpack.com. Dill, we're moving really well here. Sunday, October 6th, Wilco is playing the Budweiser stage. This next line, Dill, I have it in there just for you. Remember Sky Blue Sky Sandwiches? Oh, I could use a heavy metal drummer sandwich right now. (laughs) It was my buddy Chad who opened it, and his dream was to name every sandwich after a Wilco tune. Guaranteed he's going to be at the show. 7.30 p.m. at the Budweiser stage, 909 Lakeshore Boulevard West. If you need the address, though, you're kind of crazy. It's that big venue right on the water. SeatGiant.ca still has tickets for Wilco. Use promo code STRINGER, and you can save yourself money off your tickets. That's right. The whole weekend, all wrapped up into like two minutes. I'm getting better at this. Remember, our ideas aren't for everyone, but you can do one of two things about it. You can reach out to us with what you've got coming on up on the weekend, and we'll be happy to promote it, either on Twitter, at Stringer Podcast, or email us, events at thestringer.ca. Or you can just go on your own time to seatgiant.ca and plan the weekend yourself. 
They have tickets for concerts, sporting events, theater, live shows, comedy, and if you use promo code STRINGER, you can save money on any and all of that. And they don't know we're still saying this, and I'm straight up, like, I haven't talked to them in months, but they haven't shut off our promo code, so we made a, like, a decision, an executive decision here that we're going to keep giving it to you guys so that everyone can save money on their tickets. So for me, last week was pretty cool because I think I brought up that Nirvana Nevermind stat to just about everyone that crossed my path. When you're getting to be my age, you know, the ripe old age of 35, most of the people in your circle absolutely drown in nostalgia when splashed with even the littlest bit of 90s music knowledge. Part of me thinks that before today's streaming and download culture really took hold, back when we would listen to full albums in our friend's basement and then debate in the cafeteria the ultimate reordering of Weezer's Blue Album track list, you know, like every sane person did, I felt that music was far more communal. I bet 80% of the albums that I owned were also owned by most of the people I hung out with. Now with Alucard downloading on iPhones, media players, and Spotify, the playlists of those in my friend group couldn't be further apart. So with the 90s still in my mind, there might not be a song that transports me back to chill times at my best friend's house quite like this one. Champagne Supernova, released by Oasis as the epic closing track to What's the Story Morning Glory on October 2nd, 1995, 24 years ago. In 2010, the record would be deemed Britain's greatest album since 1980, and Liam Gallagher did what Liam Gallagher does. He accepted his award with a foul-mouthed speech, then hucked the trophy into the crowd. Definitely a man of the people. Champagne Supernova, then the sax, then Sean Fitzgerald. Hope you all enjoy your week. How many special people change? How many lives are living strange? Where were you while we were getting high? Slowly walking down the hall, faster than a cannonball. Where were you while we were getting high? to move up to north bay and we'll live live off the land or something we'll get to that i want to make sure dill you good oh see the thumbs the thumbs and the fingers i didn't see it that's that's why i sit here did you get the thumb or the finger i got the thumb okay which means everything is amazing perfect i don't uh what's the longest written piece Let's start here. What's the longest written piece? Actually, you know what? No, no, no. I always screw this up. Ha. Sean Fitzgerald on the podcast. It always takes me like 10 minutes to realize that I haven't introduced my guest. Man, wind that thing back. I'm way better this time around. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This oh, is a great space. It's it's a cozy I mean, not, space. Not your office. Your office is a hellscape of paper and detritus, yeah. but everywhere else in this space is a great space. <laughs> Everyone else's desk is very clean and orderly. Well, I, in fairness, I didn't see your desk because yeah, there was a whole bunch it's of buried. literal garbage um, on top of it. I like to pretend that it's all very important stuff, all top secret 
you know, needs my attention right away. But I said to Laura this morning, I said, I haven't touched any of those papers that have been sitting on my chair for months since that chair was moved in there. And I don't think I have to. Like, it's not like I've missed anything. The TFC 2008 game notes for the Columbus crew, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that'll come around again in terms of utility, but, you know, it's good for you to have. It's like, or it's like a Dallas Aikens transcript from from 2009, you know, just in case I need to review that article and find out, you know, why he's using Christian Hansen on the second power play line and not the first. Obviously, because he went to Notre Dame. Obviously, that's why we all like him. Uh, I can't imagine what this week or what the forget the week what the last three years have been for you and that's why i wanted to ask what's the longest piece this thing we're gonna talk about not included that you've written that you can remember you've done a lot of writing yeah i mean some of them just seemed long they might have been 400 <laughs> words it's like christ is this, this is thing the worst 400 year words yeah. i've ever had to write it's like toronto maple leafs game advance for a 1999 game <laughs> against pittsburgh this is just awful tedious and terrible no like Nothing like this. I mean, um, I I think the prologue is something like seven or 8,000 words alone. And the longest story I'd ever written might have been pushing 2,500 words. And that was at National Post. And that was just almost an experimental piece. But I, I, I mean, my wheelhouse has always been... You know, day to day at National Post at Toronto Star, eight to twelve, seven to nine, seven. Well, there you and go. And then, and then it'd be you know for features, you'd go up to about fifteen. Yeah. And if you're feeling really inspired, it'd be about two thousand. But that was a ceiling. Mm. And to step into this, it was terrifying because even the worst story, like the ones where you come back and maybe the you know the pucks in deep quotes were worse yeah. even than usual. For a seven hundred word story, you can generally figure out the structure. Okay, this is the story. So this is the lead. This will be the first quote. This will be the nut graph, which mm-hmm. is sort of like establishing the theme, what the story will be about. You know, and this is the worst case scenario. Then you yeah. throw in some stats, yeah. a couple more quotes, a, a little bit of observation, and then eventually you're out of it. With this, what I found was when you step into it, it's just this, yeah. this wide open space and, and all the cliches I'd ever heard or read or seen about writers and about getting lost in themselves mm-hmm. and feeling isolated. I'm like, holy crap. It's so, so true. I don't know what I'm doing here. I did. Uh, I went through a period where I was doing magazine pieces, and like my longest magazine feature, I think was 6,500, and that that felt like I was writing a book. Like that really in my head, I'm like, no, 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 no. I could just go right to the publisher with this. It's got more information than anyone's gonna want to read. But it's only because you get into a rhythm of things. So Before the Lights Go Out is the name of the book. Let's let's get there. Everyone's sitting here wondering, <laughs> what are we talking about? What's this mystery piece? Before the Lights Go Out is your first first novel. First, first book, book. First nonfiction. Um, or fiction. Or it's first fiction. anything. That's fair. First yeah. anything. It's fair. <laughs> McClellan. What, was it, what was your first fiction book? <laughs> <laughs> McClellan and Stewart, uh, Penguin Random House, available October 1st, which is uh, a Tuesday, and it's available obviously online. Which is awesome, the way this all, we're recording this on a Thursday, so it comes out on a Monday, oh and the book will be available tomorrow, or if you listen to this on a Tuesday, it's available today, or if you listen to this on a Wednesday... You better get your hands on it because it's going to sell it quick. <laughs> immediacy, Sean. We're all about immediacy as much get as possible. Get it before it lands in Kay- uh, Clayton's desk because then it'll never be seen again. <laughs> There's a copy on my desk. Your publisher was great enough no, to send one wasn't. over. 100%. Promise I didn't you. see that. Yeah, well, it's because it's buried. I mean, I saw the I saw a little hint of like the Ford Pinto that was like the, I saw like yeah. 
I saw like part of the bumper there, but I didn't see anything else. You, all you look for is the bend in the other sheets of paper oh, to know that there's a substantial thing right, right, underneath right, there. Right. That's also where like I keep... a small 1970s automobile. Or my lunch. Oh, God. 100%. The 1970s. Yeah, 1970s lunch. That's what happened. What do we eat how, for lunch tonight? It'd this, be like roast beef, I think. How does that pass safety inspections in Big. this building? Like, this is a lovely building. Thank you. With many lovely people. Yeah, how and do that, I get through the doors? Well, I mean, how how is that allowed? Like, I took a look at that chair. It was, like, remember when you saw the Blair Witch Project for the first time in, like, 1998? I'm like, that's me in the basement staring at the corner <laughs> is looking at your, your chair. Um, like, there's snot running down my nose. My eyes are watering. I... I have a very, very simple solution to all of this. Uh, my door is shut unless I'm sitting in there. And when I'm in there, I'm the meanest p- pit bull I know. No one crosses me. And you see how we enter my room and the chair is like behind the wall to the right? That means you could stand at the door and never even know it existed. You can see the couch in there. You can see my desk in there, albeit messy, but you don't see the paper chair. Do you sit with like a sat phone or a GPS so when the inevitable avalanche comes that <laughs> the rescue people will be able to find you? Like when... when why do you think I keep my EMS lunch buried shows under up, there? Like, and they get the, the people to rappel down from the ceiling and, and try and sift through the rubble yep. from the inevitable avalanche of garbage. Completely. Like, do you have something on your person? Yeah, it's a beacon. Okay, that's It's great. great. Okay, it's okay. like, it's the same one, you know, when el- elderly people fall yeah. and they press the thing that's gotcha. attached to their, okay, uh, their wrist. That's how I got, that's I got good. it covered. That's good. You got to get like a St. Bernard with the, the jar of rum around their neck so that they can come in and just Wh- a moment. Where notice. did the idea come from that it was a jar of rum? Isn't that what the St. Bernard's carried for avalanche? I thought I read that somewhere. I, to keep people warm while maybe the rest of the rescue maybe it's. I always thought, uh, being a kid, I think being first introduced, I just thought it was medicine. Now, like what medicine? let's be fair. Rum is like sure. medicine for some people. Yeah, if you're stuck in an avalanche and you're freezing, like... There's some medicinal properties in that realm. I definitely needed to keep my day going. When did we first? <laughs> when did we first meet? Would it be at Rico? Do you think? I'm That's trying. When to... I had the beard and you were bald. No way. That yeah. Was, that never happened. <laughs> no. Um, God, it was when we were both young and beautiful. Um, yeah. Well, you were geez, beautiful. I was just a decade young. Decade ago, maybe more? a decade. I think. Yeah. More. Probably. Greg Gilbert. Oh, jeez. I'm guessing those were the days. It was nice because for me to have like recognizable media around an AHL rank was always exciting for me because I thought I was like, oh, you know, I'm rubbing shoulders with the big times because I hear I am a little independent trying to peddle his hockey stories. Uh, and then you were able to come around, which for me and was And you were exciting. still looking for people from the mainstream to rub shoulders with. Yeah, that's why I invited yeah. you over today. Oh, I see. So thanks. I, I just hope that you're going to get somebody from the mainstream <laughs> to come with you rather no. than just me falling in off the street. No, I had you. Nobody when else you, answered the phone. So you would have been, I guess, at the post- then you were at the post. Yeah. Uh, when did you start there? Started Probably there in 2000? 2000, and then I uh, left basically in 2015. Were you ready to school at yes. that point? Graduated Ryerson. Trying to do math in my yeah, head. Yeah, no, I had uh, I'm a graduation writer, not a uh, ceremony in May, and then I started the post on the Monday. That doesn't happen every day. No, I mean I didn't turn there as well through a placement, yeah. through a job placement, and then picked up a weekly reporting shift. Hmm. And again, this was a hundred years ago. So there were still jobs. Um, and still newspapers. Like, the newspapers are yeah. still there. They're still vital. My wife's the education reporter at the Globe and Mail. She's the, um, she's the real journalist in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, National Post was fabulous. I've, Bruce Arthur was the MC at my wedding. I met him at the Post. No yeah. way. Bruce, and you guys have, oh, obviously if he's the MC at your wedding, but you yes. guys have kept friends 
Oh yeah, no, ever he's, since. Yeah, it, no, he's, if he's, anyone's on Twitter, which I think the majority of the population is, you see kind of the circles everyone runs in based on who they just retweet and talk to all the time. Bruiser's the best. No, when we were at the post, we were both kids um, in our early twenties, and <laughs> um, so we had the weekend reporting shifts, and it was way up in Don Mills. So which is it's it's like the Great Plains, right? Yeah. Like there's nothing up there. So did you grow up in the city? No, I grew up in Burlington. I mean, oh, speaking you grew of up giant Burlington, metropolises. Okay. Yeah. But no, so like on the Sunday reporting shifts, we'd take off, you know, in the middle of the morning and he'd have a wiffle ball set in the trunk of his car and we'd go play it in the parking lot. We uh, we get um, masking tape from the library and um, we'd go to like Gamecraft or whatever, Mastermind, mm-hmm. and those little putting return machines mm-hmm. and we'd get one and with the masking tape, we'd map out a little nine hole mini putt course around all the cubicles. So like through the arts and life and through the op-ed department, you know, there's like a water hazard because like there's a Clayton Hansley there and it's like garbage and we have to put everywhere and we do that all the time. We even started doing it on uh, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays. It was, it was a great time. You guys were the life of the party. He's a great person. Yeah. He was a great person. You're a great friend. I mean, he is still a great person. He's not. It didn't end. He didn't, he didn't change. He got, he got taller, I think, but he added 12 children to his repertoire, but that's that's about it. uh, I remember days when I was at Leafs TV and we took... I think we took like the the fluorescent lights apart because they weren't the ones that were recessed in the ceilings. The ballasts were kind of attached to the ceiling, so they had a U-shaped uh, diffuser that kind of clipped into them. And we took all the U-shaped diffusers down and up and around our office, we built ramps because we had the uh, that exact same Masterminds uh, mini putt return machine. That's awesome. And then you would go up and I have a video from like 2009 <laughs> that I had kept and I send it to one of the guys I used to work with every once in a while, usually on his birthday to be like, Hey, remember the good old days? Awesome. And it was like, you putt and it goes up and around and you know, you have all your little bits and it comes down and he would be able to nail it seven <laughs> times out of 10 that would go up and around. I wasn't that talented. Sports was never my thing. So I got into writing. That's fair. I tried to get into writing. That's fair. Then I went to video because I realized writing wasn't my thing. And then I tried video and I got into producing because I'm like, oh man, this video stuff's really tough. So what's next? Like what's the galaxy brain then? Uh, are you are you looking for an assistant? Because trust me, I'm great coffee fetcher. I can make sure all your polos are ironed. Um, I do have a lot of polos. Pick yes. your kids up. If they need, drop them, drive them anywhere they need. I don't know if I can afford the liability insurance if you picked up the kids. <laughs> My four-year-old, I mean, I mean, I know an indictment's not the same as a conviction, but like, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on, on an enemy, let alone a good friend. Did you, were you, uh, when you went to sports reporting at the post, were you doing all sports, not just hockey? Yeah, because I, I feel like I've always seen you just be able to comment on everything. No, I mean I started as a news reporter at National Post. I I covered um, City Hall. I was just general assignment. I'd mm-hmm. go do like the real serious things, and then it just happened again because this was a different century almost. Mm-hmm. Um, a job opened up in sports, and the next thing I knew, they're like, "Well, you're you're not doing news anymore. You're doing sports." I'm mm-hmm. like, well, okay, huh. I um, guess. Yeah, no, and, and because it was National Post, it was relatively small yeah. um, in terms of a sports department. Yeah, I did everything. And and what I found over the years, especially now that I'm, I'm old, I'm 42. Um, oh, yeah, ancient. Like ancient. Whatever. Um, like, I don't have the attention span to do one sport. Like, I, I right. couldn't go do hockey every day because mm-hmm. eventually the 
get books in deep, you know, I yeah. compete. Like I just, yeah. it, it has no meaning. Yeah. Um, and the Can't same, teach with, right. It's the same <laughs> with baseball. Um, it, it's nice to jump in on all the other sports, yeah. um, you know, amateur sports, Olympics, they're, they're the greatest. Um, I, I like jumping around mostly cause it's, I don't have any, say, I don't have any talent to focus in on one mm. and I don't have the attention span to be a specialist or the idea, uh, that you, we can diversify our interests because we, you know, you come across people in your lives and I love it when I come across someone who has just been so focused on hockey, let's say that I met 10 or 12 years ago and they've stayed and they've increased their knowledge and increased their contacts and their understanding. They're of interest to me because I always know they can teach me something I can learn from them. But I very much have a scattered, you know, sense of, uh, of what I want to know about and learn about. And I've tried to kind of keep that moving. Um, and I find it's neat. It's neat when someone can bounce from sport to sport and yet speak about it confidently. And it's almost like you realize that there is this, this constant with athletes and with coaches that you can understand them on a certain level, regardless what the sport is. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there are different stakes for each athlete. So, you know, the Toronto Argonauts, um, those guys have varied experiences from all over the United States. Um, the, the Toronto Maple Leafs, generally speaking, are not quite as varied in their experience. And this is of no fault of their own. No, if, you think, if you think about hockey players, like from the time you're 12, 13, like if you're exceptional talent, um, I mean, your schedule is pretty regimented. You know, when practices, your team has skills instructors, all of that stuff. Your parents take care of a lot of stuff. When you get to the OHL, you have your pregame naps, you have billets who cook for you. Uh, when you get to the AHL, yeah, you got to find your own apartment and buy your own stuff. But if you're a real Some NHL, of the time. you're Even real then. NHLer, like... Like Mitch Marner has his mom in his apartment to cook for him. Like their life experiences are generally fairly narrow. Mm -hmm. They're very specialized at a young age that, you know, they didn't necessarily go to university. They might've gone from junior hockey straight to the show. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in terms of life experience perspective, I mean, it's not to minimize their perspective, but it is a fairly narrow, mm -hmm. shallow pool. Whereas some of the other sports, I mean, the, my favorite to deal with are amateur athletes mm -hmm. because, you know, they're not making millions of dollars. They're, they're competing for the love of the sport. They're, you know, oftentimes trying to cobble together, you know, enough money to compete. You asked me about the longest story I ever did before the book. It was, it was about modern pentathlon. Really? It was about um, Donna Vakalis. She uh, was, for a period, uh, Canada's highest-ranked female modern pentathlete. And she went to the University of Toronto. She was a PhD student. Mm -hmm. And modern pentathlon, I'm going to put you on the spot. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you name me the five sports for modern pentathlon? No. It took me a uh, long time. If I were to guess, I can say there's a running component. You're right. Swimming component. You're right. Biking component. Mm, no, no cycling. No cycling. Interesting. Uh, is there an archery component? No, they're shooting. They're shooting. Okay. Yeah. God, mm. can I even remember? So, so the, the idea, I'm going to try and see if I can talk myself into remembering what yeah. these five are. <laughs> I, I love uh, how you were looking to me where you made it like he was no, a no, quiz. No, 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 wait but a the truth like, was cycling, like, can, cycling. Can, can, can you help me? No, it's, it's so. I was going to take basically a triathlon <laughs> and just add two on the end. Pierre de Coubertin, the yeah. founder of the modern Olympic movement. Um, designed modern pentathlon himself. And it was around the time of the First World War and designed the sport to highlight uh, what was then felt to be all the skills that uh, a modern soldier should have. Climbing? Uh, so it was running, mm -hmm. 
It was shooting. Okay. It was horseback riding. Oh, interesting. It was swimming. And it was fencing. So you had to... Because the modern You had to soldier, run. Yeah, you had to run the over fence. the hill. You had yeah. to know how to use a bayonet or a sword. Right. You had to ride away on a horse. You had to swim across a river, all these things. So anyway, it's a fairly obscure sport. Nike and Gatorade aren't banging down the door <laughs> to sit, you know, sponsor these folks. So she was one of the best people we had in Canada doing it. And she went to the University of Toronto. So she's a full-time student. She lived in the basement apartment in a house owned by a former Olympian who's like, I understand. I got right. you. So we're going to give you a, a break on the rent and you live in our basement. It was a nice space. Yeah. But like to, to pay for her training with the gun, she had to take on extra classes to mark as a TA. Mm -hmm. And if she took that time to mark as a TA, it meant she had to skip swim practice. So to make up for swim practice, she'd like, you know, skip cross country practice with the U of T team the following week to make up with the swim practice right. and to get time. So like these are real life juggling a, experiences and you're choosing like, am I going to have money to eat this week right. or am I going to train for my sport? And you compare and contrast that with, again, not their own fault, but like a junior hockey player who has their meals through a billet program. Yeah, they're underpaid. They get an honorarium and they should yeah. be paid a salary, but like they're not going to starve mm -hmm. and anything they need to do their craft, they're going to get. They have the sticks, they have the skates. So amateur athletes to me are more often inherently more interesting. I think that for a reason is why I've enjoyed sticking to amateur, like the lower end of pro. That's why I, I, I love the AHL so much. That's why I love the various uh, soccer development programs. That's why I love some of the lower leagues when it comes to basketball. Because I enjoy that idea that for me that this is a stop, that you aren't where you want to be yet. Now, that's different than amateur athletes that, that are competing at the highest level in their barely recognized or or lowly recognized sport but i enjoy that idea that you're kind of you're not at the end we're we're all on a journey and so are you and you haven't really figured out you know how far you're going to go yet yeah no and I, I mean the folks who are super talented um they get there because they have a singular focus and, and have for a long long time so you look at the top i mean connor mcdavid austin matthews like there's a, a singular focus there um when you, when you get that close to your dream, but you just can't make that final leap, it requires the introduction of some kind of perspective often. And that's where they start, you know, com contemplating the mortality of their athletic career, which mm -hmm. is a hell of a thing. Like, like athletes die twice, right? Like their career, everything they've known since they were eight ends when they retire and they have to find something to do with the rest of their lives. And, and that's, I mean, it sounds cynical, but they become really interesting then again, because like contemplating mortality. Like, what are you going to do? You can only play so much golf. Even if you were one of the right. lucky ones who made, you know, $10 million over the yeah. course of your career, like you can only play so many rounds of golf. Like you can only watch so much Netflix really. At like, 34. Yeah. Or at 35. What are you going to do? Or if you're lucky, maybe it's 29. Right. Maybe it's 30. Right. Uh, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? So yeah, I know it's, there's a bunch of things that are really interesting and that's why I mean, that's why I like bouncing around because mm -hmm. there's there's so much more than just the games. And I mean, the games, they're really, really smart people. Uh, James Myrtle, obviously at the mm -hmm. Athletics, one of them, um, who can break down the games and tell you what, you know, you're, tell you what you're seeing, but also other things to look for beneath that, mm -hmm. whether it be through statistics or through his reporting, because he is, he is a hockey, like he is a hockey head. He knows mm -hmm. his hockey. Um, I don't have that level of intelligence, mm -hmm. so I have to 
go look around for other stories. Did you guys first meet at the Post? I'm trying to do my math. Yeah, and, no, and uh, he, was an he was an intern at National Post. Holy smokes. Years and years ago, before he joined the Globe, he was an intern. So that's where he met. Yeah. I'd drive him home because he got a place uh, somewhere in Midtown. So I'd drive him home because getting to Don Mills from Midtown is, <laughs> it's like the first couple of times you portage, it's a thing, yeah. but then it, you know, it gets, that's where you gets need, to be a bit onerous. That's where you need the modern pentathlete. Because you've got to do a little bit of running, a little bit of swimming, yeah. a little bit of shooting, yeah. a little bit of fencing. Bear wrestling. Maybe, Bear. That, maybe that was the sixth bonus yeah. sport. But <laughs> beaver, to get up to Don Beaver Mills. tailing? That's yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna have to dessert. Google that one. No. I'm going to Google that one. <laughs> um, athletes find this really neat stage, uh, going on your last comment, around 30-31. And I think it's what you had mentioned that, that they, for the first time, are in touch with their mortality. Because they know if they're still in the sport at that point, they know their days are numbered. And where you might be battling them in their young 20s to try and get them to show a little bit of, first of all, we're talking about a young 20-year-old trying to show some insight and some experience, which is tough on, I can't imagine doing it. No. But when they hit around 30, they know they're in the final days and they become, a lot of the time, much more open to exploring bigger and deeper issues with you. And I've always enjoyed those, those conversations uh, because I feel that's where I've really taken in the most knowledge of what it actually is. You can be at the rink every single day with them, but you don't know. You do, We think we do. We're there all the time. But you don't know what they're going through and what it's like. And that's, I mean, when some of the retired players come out with books and even like Curtis Joseph, for an example, was always very guarded when he spoke with the media, the Toronto Maple Leafs goalie. Very guarded, very careful with Detroit what he said. Detroit Red Wings goalie. Eh, Toronto no. Maple, let's say Toronto Maple Leafs, St. Louis Blues, Edmonton Oilers. Um, <laughs> so with his book that he, he put out, what, a year or so ago, it 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 was it, honestly like there's still pieces of my skull that are on the ceiling in my house because my my brain just exploded. Like he he went into such candid detail about the challenges of growing up in a really difficult home without much love or support at all or, or any parental figures, let alone food, sleeping on soiled mattresses, not having clothing. Like the things he had to overcome. Like his story is holy mackerel. But, you know, you'd be damned if he ever really told it with that much um, detail when he was mm -hmm. a player. It was it was with the perspective of age. And mm -hmm. I mean, maybe that's uh, we're, I'm being a bit unfair then on the on the kids who are coming up because maybe they haven't amassed those life experiences. Or I mean, the stakes are so high for professional athletes now that maybe you don't want to let it all hang out, so to speak. But I mean, speaking in generalities, that's why I like the amateur athletes, because mm -hmm some of them have a bit more perspective and a bit more life experience at those ages. Hockey is such a, and, and, and being in Canada, I imagine it's football in the States that they have that similar relationship with the sport, but having to deal, and I, the older I get, the more I feel for the 19 year old that for the first time is forget the media and the media training and all that it is you're dealing with a career period. Like you got a, you got a boss and you got to make a boss happy. I remember how many bosses I didn't care about for a while. I was like, oh, he doesn't understand me anyway. Like I care, like I needed to pay for my rent. Um, and then the pressure of, of, of having a large sum of money all at once when you could be someone, I think of Nick Cousins who came from, from very modest means, or you brought up Curtis Joseph, you come from very modest means, man, you get like an entry level salary and you might as well have won the lottery. It feels it is endless amounts of money in your head. 
Well, he would have come along before the structured entry-level contracts. But yeah, no, Curtis Joseph made his money over the Mm -hmm. course of his career. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, when you think about it, when you're a pro athlete at that age, having your head on your shoulders, I think we, we underrate how important that is. Mm -hmm. I mean, the- And how hard it is to do. I mean, the temptations, the the things that are available to you, the, the life decisions that, you know, us mere mortals never really have to make. Um, I mean, yeah, they're not superhuman, but like you have to make sure that you have a, a pretty good advisory group mm-hmm. or a, a, a fairly steady handle on reality or else I would imagine um, it wouldn't be that hard to sort of float away. How did the adaptability work? Uh, the, or the Not adaptability, but the whole age morphing. We joke that that way back in 2000, when newspapers were, st- were still printed on presses and people still he- held in their hand this information, how did you find the change in around 2009, 2010, 2011, when when Twitter became a thing and stories broke that way? I, I feel that at least you, from my perspective, you never dug your heels in. You were right there, and I could interact with you either at the rink or online right away. So, were you just one that decided, "Hey, I'm going to jump on board right away"? I mean, maybe I was lucky enough that I was I was of a certain age, a certain demographic. That maybe you know there there are new platforms that come along now where, mm-hmm. like, there's going to be a day where you're like, "Okay, this is the one where this is the bus that I miss," right? Like TikTok. I say that all the time. Maybe this is the bus I miss and maybe this is where I start getting left behind. But I mean, when Twitter came out, I was still young enough that that I could understand it. And I mean, it was still small enough and it was, the time was still innocent enough that you could sort of goof around on it and find your voice and find a place. Um, Certainly everybody makes mistakes on it. Um, But yeah, no, eventually I'm 42 now. Mm. Um, There's going to be new ventures, new things that come out. I'm like, I don't understand this. Or I don't care. I mean, I like to care. Um, <laughs> well, that's good. But like, like I like, I like on an academic level, the idea of Twitch. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't understand it. I, I don't like watching people play video games. That's not my thing. Yep. I understand how people could find it interesting because it is, it is kind of interactive. Um, I mean, obviously a lot of it's passive. You're watching mm-hmm. video games, but I mean, if you want to think about it, think of, you know, before we were really allowed out all the movies in the early eighties of people hanging around arcades, watching people playing like space invaders or Pac-Man. Like it's not a new phenomenon. No. So I get it. I've tried it. I understand it. It doesn't appeal to me. Yeah. So maybe this is a bus I miss, but I don't hold it against anybody who's like, I'm on Twitch all the time. I, uh, it's the growing sense of community that I think I'm relating to. And I'm able to see as these different platforms pick up is that this growing sense of need and it's the same as high school like i i decided when i listened to punk music that i only wanted to listen to punk music for a period of time and i wouldn't open the doors to anything else because i wanted to identify with a group because they gave me a sense of community and people i could talk to and and that's with each platform that keeps getting added all i see is just people finding their people and being able to share it with them and that for that was an adjustment i had to make uh, let's look at Twitter, one of in the early stages, the social media takeover that you weren't talking at people. It wasn't a pedestal in which I, I preached from. It works way better when you just interact 
when you just chat back and forth and you're like, hey, I saw you said this or whatever. That's interesting. And and you open up dialogue and people love it. Like when you just think of readers or followers, they love being involved in dialogue much more than just being thrown links all the time. I've honestly made real world friends through Twitter. Uh, met either because you know, uh, something I posted from a lease practice, they're a leaf fan, find out that they're, you know, from the part of Toronto I live in, uh, started playing shinny, started, you know, uh, interacting. Um, there, there's one that I now volunteer on a, on a board with there's, there's all of this. And it all started like when they come into Toronto, there's gatherings and I've been to Montreal and, and visited people, had dinner with folks mm-hmm. that I'd only really known through Twitter because of those early days, yeah. mostly early days. Doesn't happen as much anymore, but the, the connections I made in those early days, I now consider friends, like yeah. honest to goodness, real life friends. And was it 2015, you said you were at the post from 2000, 2015. Was 2015 when you decided to go to the star? Uh, was yes, that the, it was, was after that the, the, the Pan Am games here, um, right. Pan Am games and then Labor Day. And then I went to the star for 24 minutes before they laid me off. November, 2016. Is that roughly where you, what, what it was? But they, uh, yeah, they whacked me, um, August, 2016 and August. it was sort of a three month notice. So you still, you're right. still working for them for three months. Oh, that's interesting. But at the end of the three months, it's, uh, you don't have to stay here. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here sort of thing. So, I mean, it was, I mean, I had a great boss. Um, who is super understanding and the people I worked with were wonderful. Um, I could have happily spent the rest of my career there. Um, but I mean, the industry's changing. Um, so it was time for me to go. And as it turned out, um, you know, a month or so after, uh, I got the layoff notice, a couple of really fabulous opportunities just jumped out of the ether and kind of changed my life. Did you get laid off with a broken elbow? Did like, did the universe just kind of say, well, Sean, you've had a lot of good. We're going to kick you a couple times here, but don't worry. If you survive this, we got some really neat things coming up. I was playing with friends from Twitter. This is how this started. It was called, it's called the Costco Cup. And all of these people from Toronto Hockey Twitter and mm-hmm. some folks from outside of town come in and one of the ringleaders organizes a hockey tournament, like a shinny tournament, like a yep. fun, you go to Maple Leaf Gardens, you rent the ice for four, five, six hours, you have a bunch of games, you have a little fun tournament. It's yeah. great. Five on and five or three on three? Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, it was whatever. five on five. Yeah. Um, but it's just shinny. So I had a helmet, I had gloves, and I had skates. Right. What I was missing, elbow pads. Right. And I thought, you know what? It's just shinny. Like, fine. You play shinny all the time. No Completely. elbow pads. Um, <laughs> I didn't, I did, wasn't tripped. wasn't body checked. I'm just shitty at hockey and fell. And it was like driving my elbow into a dry bowl of Rice Krispies. Oh. Like you just oh. feel it. And I get up and the, the thing was my little, my, our eldest son was in the stands watching. So I'm like, get up, get up, get up. Got right up, walked right off, changed. Uh, that was a Saturday. Mm-hmm. Sunday, uh, had surgery. They oh, rebuilt right. the elbow on Sunday. I was discharged home on Monday. On Tuesday, for some reason, my mom came down from Burlington. Like she thought, you know, she'd bring me a bowl of chicken soup and make right. my elbow feel better just because she's mom and yeah. God bless her, right? Like, so we're downstairs, you know, the kids are at school, my wife's at work. It's just my mom and I. For some reason, 
we're watching Black Mass, the Johnny Depp movie. You and your mom were watching Black, Black Mass? Mass on HBO or whatever the movie yeah, channel sure, was. Whatever. And I was mom on, sounds I was on, cool, first of all. I was on Percocet, right? Like, and I'm just sort of just, just that movie is way better on Percocet. And and all of a sudden I start getting text messages from friends who are like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, well, you know, the elbow's okay. It's <laughs> fine. Hey, look, I'm on this now. I'm feeling good. And they're like, Oh, awkward emoji. Yeah. And yeah, uh, a couple of minutes later, um, I got a call saying, really sorry, but uh, you're done here. Got three months. So like I was on my arse for a month. And again, the star was my boss, Jennifer Quinn, uh, who's now with the Toronto Raptors. Just a remarkable, she is wonderful human being. Like, yeah. I'm not just saying that. Like, I don't work for her anymore. Mm. I don't earn any money. Like, there's yeah. no gambling debt. Like, no. <laughs> she's a wonderful boss. Yeah. And she was great. So when I came back after about a month uh, on my ass on the couch with a broken elbow, um, you know, I took lunches. And one Monday, I got a call from a friend of mine named Jordan Ginsburg, who I worked with at The Post and was now at McClellan Stewart, and said, hey, can I take you out for a beer? Let's have a chat. I have an idea. And I'm like, I don't have a job. I like beer. And then on the Friday, I got a call from- Wait, are you paying? I got a call. <laughs> that was, I think that was implied. <laughs> And then I got a call on Friday from somebody from San Francisco saying, hey, they run a company called The Athletic. Love to pick your brain. Yeah. And that was all in the same week. So, you know, had I not gotten whacked, would I have gotten both of those calls? Would I have gotten one or the other? I don't know. But, like, it worked. I can bend my elbow. Yeah. I have a job. And I have this book that, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be on shelves. And it's, it's crazy to see. It's interesting, first of all, uh, just the dichotomy of it all that on one hand there's the athletic which was taking a completely fresh approach to the reporting we all knew and and and, and became almost an incubator i'd say in in at least here toronto because i had so many colleagues and friends be able to join and then on the flip side you have like a book and it doesn't get much more old school than having a book on a shelf. <laughs> and, and they both presented themselves within days of each other. It was welcome. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah, um, I've been exceptionally fortunate in this industry, in this time in this industry, um, to, to work with great people at great newspapers. Um, National Post, went to Canadian Press, the Toronto Star. Um, just wonderful experiences. And then to have this, like... I am very lucky and I understand and fully acknowledge my privilege and my good luck and my good fortune. Um, and yeah, like to having these opportunities, it was, it was engaging different parts of your brain. I mm -hmm. never, like I'd read a book before, <laughs> but I never, I'd never attempted anything like this. So when Jordan, when we sat down and, you know, he sort of laid out that let's do a, be an interesting idea to take a look at what hockey looks like in Canada today. Mm -hmm. And then after a couple of beers, we, we settled on what's hockey, what's the most representative hockey market we can think of. And we tossed around a couple, Regina, Saskatoon, Halifax, um, Edmonton. And then we landed on Peterborough. Peterborough. Like Peterborough, as I came to learn is representative of, of Canada as a whole on so many levels that I think it's over the last 14 federal elections that if you win Peterborough, you form government. The Liberals, Mariam Monsef, form government federally. And the streak is, I believe, even longer on the provincial level. My goodness. That the, the, the Conservatives, the PCs, unseated the Liberals. Um, so, you know, Peterborough is a bellwether politically. 
Peterborough is the kind of place that if you want to, I don't know, test market a new Timbit mm-hmm. to see if it'll work in Prince Rupert or Regina or Calgary, you you give it a go in Peterborough first. And, you know, hockey is the same way. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like a really good idea to explore some of the broad themes of hockey in Canada through the lens of Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. And if let me know if I'm understanding this correctly. The, the premise is that hockey is changing and the landscape of hockey is changing and the thing that we find so interwoven with our culture is uh, not seeing the support maybe at once did. That's fair. Um, it, it, Canada's relationship with hockey is evolving. Yeah, It used to be, I mean, and even again, there's a caveat here, but it used to be the everyman sport. And I mean, part of the problem there is that every man's sport only applied to 50% of the population that girls for generations were not included, were not, they they did not have access. That's changed, obviously, thankfully for the better. Um, And in fact, I mean, Hockey Canada registrations, flatlining, the only thing that's keeping it from dipping is the fact that so many girls and young women are finding the game, accessing the game, playing the game at a high level. Um, But hockey, over the years, so many barriers have risen up. Some of them are obvious. It's expensive to get equipment. Yeah, Skates are expensive. Um, but there's a lot of things that aren't visible or as visible that, do you like skiing on the weekends? Do you like seeing family? Do you like going to movies? Do you like playing board games? Do you like like sitting on the couch for 20 minutes and not doing anything? Because mm. if you're in a level of hockey, there's a good chance that's all out the window. You're going to be in the rink. Do you have the ability to get out of work on a Friday because your kid's in a hockey tournament? Do you have the ability to get out of work um, to get your kid to a practice at 5 p.m. on the other side of town? Mm -hmm. Do you have a car? Um, So it's more than just the cost. Mm -hmm. And then you go into, you know, chronic traumatic encephalopathy and the long-term risk of repeated head trauma, Mm -hmm. which we're still just learning about. It's you can play year-round soccer now, basketball, cricket, e-sports, not playing any sports at all. Mm -hmm. That, you know, sports participation rates are you know, challenged across the spectrum. And the reason I pick on hockey is because those other sports weren't on the back of our $5 bill. Hockey was. Hockey's how we identify ourselves. So that's where we're focused here. But all of these things are working against hockey. And long-term, it's going to shape who plays it, Mm -hmm. who can access it, who loves it, and everybody else is going to be left outside the bubble. Do we, is there, uh, I don't want to say sweetheart syndrome, but do, do, do we almost fantasize about a relationship with hockey more than it even I want to say really exists that we love identifying ourselves with the game even though uh, maybe it's just a cause of our generation and generations that 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 came before us I agree we we embrace an echo so if you close your eyes right now I mean if you're listening to this driving your car don't close your eyes if you're on the subway you're good though yeah no subway's good you look a little strange but i mean whatever we're all sleeping yeah we're all awkward um close your eyes and think about hockey in canada you're gonna think of a light snow falling on a frozen pond against the backdrop of laughing children playing shinny which is a Sidney crosby tim hortons commercial or you're going to think back to rock carrier and the hockey sweater in that book about that little child in Quebec who was devastated to get a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey in the mail from Eaton's rather than a Canadian's jersey. And then you'll watch the National Film Board version. If you're in Ontario, you remember that was one of the first videos they ever showed you in French class in grade five. Um, That's what you think of. You think of hockey as stick, puck, like an old Eaton's catalog of shin pads. 
you get out there and you play and you have fun. There's no adults yelling at you. It's what you did. You loved it. You lived for it. You played until it was dark, until your toes hurt. Um, now, I mean, you have professional goaltending instructors working with seven-year-olds. You have professional skills development coaches coming on the ice once a week with minor novice teams. You have uh, hockey camps that, you know, they're on the ice for five hours at a CrossFit gym for another hour and they do lunch. And and that's week long and that's for kids as young as seven. Um, and that's just one tip of it. You have entire academies where kids go to school, school, quotation mark mm-hmm. maybe, um, but play hockey. And it's not just the old couple that were always around like Notre Dame and Saskatchewan, but there's, there's private ones that come around and do that. Um, there are kids who are on the ice year round. There are kids who play spring hockey, summer hockey, kids who leave their teams because they believe there's a better path to AAA to another team. Uh, kids who are promised a spot on one team and it's taken away because another, like all of these things are barriers that either prevent people from joining hockey or chase them away before they're fully physically mature or just burn them the F out. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is you're reducing the number of kids at the entry level. So if you think of hockey development as a triangle, Mm -hmm. the fewer people who are at the very bottom, your house league kids, your grassroots kids, that, you know, when you, when you narrow that, what happens to the triangle? It, It gets lower, it gets smaller. So eventually, you know, the kids that you have, who are at the very top, that base isn't going to be nearly as big. Mm -hmm. So are we seeing the beginning of this with the Americans now who have been implementing some of these changes and you see them producing Austin Matthews, Jack Eichel, those other big name players, and you see them on the women's side dominating at the world championship level, starting to win Olympic medals, like gold medals, taking our Olympic gold medals. So, you know, if you roll this out and you think, oh, you're being alarmist, Roll this out 15 years. Mm-hmm. So my kid will be in his 20s. Um, Canada hasn't won an Olympics in four cycles. Canada barely makes the medal podium in the world championships, men's and women's. What does that do for our identity as a nation? What does that do for how we connect with hockey? If we're out there and we're getting, you know, slobber knockered by the Americans, you know, those super goalies that the Finns see keep seeming to produce. Um, Sweden's doing more with less. What happens if we really fall behind and we stop being the hockey power? Do we then rally behind it? Like, do we become England with soccer where they're always cheering for a team with no hope of doing anything? I I would posit we probably don't. Mm-hmm. I think Canada is changing enough. We're diverse enough that there'll be other things that we find. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, right. people should have varied interests. My interest here is exploring what hockey means to us now and what it might mean and what it might look like if it doesn't mean as much to us in a generation. Spending a, was it a full season, one full year with Peterborough? Yes. Yeah. For someone who expressed earlier that you enjoyed having varied interests and being able to work with different types of athletes and different types of sports, what was it like for you to commit one full year to one arena and one group of people and one team. Yeah, I mean, the really cool thing about this is it was a completely new experience. I had never really been around much junior hockey. Um, So the dynamics of the parents, the billets, the agents, how they interacted with the community, the management, the challenges that are unique to junior hockey. Um, And then the other thing was like my, my favorite spot in all of the Peterborough Memorial Center 
was in the hallway outside the home team's dressing room after a game. So the kids go and they get dressed and, you know, they're out on the ice and they're gladiators. Like even the little 16-year-olds, they have their helmets mm-hmm. and they have their shoulder pads and they look like it's, it's tough to see from up top that these are just who they are, right? Like they look, they look like hockey players. And then afterwards, after they've done the media and they've done their, we got to get pucks in deep, got to turn things around. They get changed, they get showered, they go out and mom and dad are waiting there or their girlfriends are waiting out there or, you know, their other partners are out there, their friends are out there. And you take a look and the way, whether they smile, whether they giggle, like they're just kids, Mm -hmm. they're just kids. And we, what we expected these kids on the big stage it really put it into perspective that, you know, 18 year old kids who go to the world juniors or 18 year old kids who are drafted or these kids have to go in and hammer the weights or watch their diets or they're not kids. They're, they're automatons in training. And, and to see them in those moments in the hallway outside the home team dressing room and to see a kid who might've got tossed because he punched another kid in the face with a ruthless right hammer shot and to see him giggle and talk to his parents and joke with his friends about how, yeah, you know, I let my girlfriend cut my hair this week. Sorry about that. Like, it really is something that I had never seen before because you don't usually get behind the curtain like that. I remember uh, the first producer, the senior producer at Leafs TV who hired me there uh, was a billet in Mississauga. And um, he had had, I think he had billeted two different players and I kind of knew about it. But the one I really got close to was Stuart Percy, who ended up, you know, first of all, he was a local boy, and then he ended up getting drafted by the Toronto Maple Leafs, which never worked out for him, unfortunately, because that, I think, talking about at the the beginning when you spoke about uh, going through a death when you leave hockey, man, seeing any one of your dreams die on a vine, like having grown up in the Mississauga area, playing for Mississauga in blue and white, and then being drafted by the Leafs, and then just not cutting it, your heart bled for the kid because you appreciated uh, much as what you said. I saw him in the basement playing video games. That's where I saw him. I saw him out back. I saw him, you know, um, in all these low key moments that you realize, holy smokes, you are only 17 or you're only 18. Uh, and and we do. And, and I'm guilty of it, too. I turn on World Juniors every single year. And that's Team Canada. That's How do you make they, that turnover? Why didn't you make that save? It's like, oh, right. well, wait, wait a second. They're not, they're, they're potentially just old enough to like buy a six pack or vote. And I'm someone who's been in this damn industry long enough, like even a decade that I should know. And we talk about it that yeah. I'm like, I know you're a kid. I listen to you talk. And yet you put on that helmet and I'm still like, Get him. yeah, exactly. And I mean, Stuart Percy, again, through no fault of his own, but he, he, represents two of the challenges, not directly, but that are facing hockey is that, I mean, he's, he's from a family of means, I believe. Um, so there's that. And then his career was also sort of waylaid by, if I'm not mistaken, he had a concussion or, or several. Um, so those are two things that, you know, is this a game that is more welcoming for people with means? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is this a game that whose future might be dictated by, you know, advancements in science that show repeated head trauma, even if it's a subconcussive blow, like the kind that would happen and even the most passive hockey game will lead potentially to chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Mm-hmm. Those are two things that might end up undoing part of this game. What was your process like as you're writing a novel for the very first time? Were you a cue card guy? Were you a, 
like a transcription and notes and notebook guy. Uh, I've heard of a couple different avenues that people I haven't written a book. I can barely write all the paper that's on my desk. Um, what which what did you kind of lean towards as you're creating uh, 292 page? I'm guess are you 86,000 words? That's my guess. Uh, I think you know, it was between 95 and 100. Holy smokes. Um, you forgot the tears. You left out all the no. tears. <laughs> Part of my method was was chronic crying every day. I'm like, I don't know what this book is. I don't know what I'm doing. Why am I doing this? Ghost written by your wife. Basically, yeah. She's yeah, amazing. No, she is the talented, real journalist. Um, and she did. She saw everything before anybody else did. She's great, uh, which is a reason her name's first in the, uh, in the dedication. Um, but yeah, no, like I did. I had the cue cards and I had that big, uh, remember the grade eight science projects used to do with the huge Bristol boards yep. that were three panels. And I arranged dozens and dozens and dozens of cue cards with thoughts of potential chapters or things that should go into chapters or themes and then tried to, you know, like, like Tetris, rearrange them mm -hmm. uh, so they worked and, and build into themes. Because, I mean, this book... It, the peats are the narrative spine, but it is sort of kaleidoscopic mm -hmm. in that it jumps all over the place. That we could we could spend a, a bus ride with the peats in one chapter, and then go hang out with Rock Carrier in his living room in Montreal, and then go hang out with Nelson Reese on a patio on a pub patio in Ottawa, and then jump back into something because it's very thematic. Different. Yeah, it tries to follow the theme, um, and and you know, laying out an issue and then exploring it how it relates in real time to the Peterborough Peets, right. um, whether it be, you know, um, uh, who plays for the Peets, um, how they interact with each other, how they work under stress, how they work in new environments because of, you know, where they come from. Mm -hmm. And on the documentary side, that's a framing device for us, right? The Peets would be the framing device that we explore this whole thing through the eyes of this. So we can always return back to them when we want to advance the story. Um, for me, it's sticky notes. It always starts with sticky notes. And I do exactly what you described. I might just use a wall, but it's just sticky, 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 sticky. Yeah. And sometimes I color code them and start grouping them in, in, into bits. Uh, did you find yourself writing um, par portions of chapters or full chapters, even out of order of the other ones? I mean, I guess everybody has their own method. Mine is... That's why I want to learn yours. <laughs> you had the book published. Mine, it's the same when I do a story for The Post, The Star, The Athletic. Is Like Chris Jones, who writes for Esquire, and I was lucky enough to sit beside him at National Post for a few years. He writes the ending last. He wants to know where he gets to. Like he wants to write the ending so he knows the boom. This is what I'm building to. And then he tries to reverse engineer how he gets to the ending. Like that's, right, right, right. this is the point. This is the point I want to make. This is the, this is the landing. This is where I want to leave the reader with. Yeah. And I get that. I have no way of doing that myself. Hmm. I always have to start at the top and work my way down. So with the book. Page one. Page one, chapter one. Uh, page 20, chapter two. Whatever. Work all the way down. Had to. So that's what a lot of it was in the, in the sticky notes, the cue cards beforehand, mm -hmm. trying to work through it that way before I started writing the first word. Do you value an editor now more than you did maybe in those first days at, at the post where you realize how valuable a really good editor can be, especially when you're like, I'm doing something for the first time and you're going to help me because I need it. Again, I've been really lucky in that I've always, always 20 years had great editors. 
uh, Graham Parley, who's now retired, Jim Bray, who's now at the star, Guy Spurrier, Bev Wake, Jennifer Quinn, Julie Scott, Neil Davidson, um, you know, working with the team we have in place now, I've been really lucky. Hmm. Um, and Jordan Ginsburg, who was my editor for the book, was amazing. Mm -hmm. I'd send nervous texts at midnight saying, I'm lost here. Mm -hmm. Or I'd send texts after an interview saying, this was a great interview. Or I don't know what to do with this. Or mm -hmm. what's the theme here? What's the structure? What should I do? He was always there, encouraging, working through, sending notes, um, sending whole books over mm -hmm. uh, just to say, hey, maybe take a read this, take a look at how they handled the structure. Not mm -hmm. saying you have to follow the structure, but just to sort of prime the well, right? Mm -hmm. and, and he was great. He was, he was the reason this thing got done. Do you see books differently now? Mentioning that because a lot of times I'll see documentaries or I'll see films a little bit differently now. There's a piece of my brain that's trying to be like, oh, how did they do that? Or, or, or how is that done? Did you find during that process that it kind of wired yourself a little bit differently or maybe you were doing that all the way along? No, this was completely different. It was a completely different headspace. Um, the whole process, just the volume of it. I think I, I really probably discounted before. Maybe not discounted or never, maybe that's not the right word. It's never fully understood mm -hmm. that like, you know, with a story, I have a 1200 word story. I know how long that's going to take me. I know it's going to take me this many hours to transcribe the interviews, to chase down more interviews, uh, to do more research, to go into the archives if need be. And I know how long roughly it'll take me to write it. And I can budget out for the book. Like, I'm like, well, I better transcribe this stuff now. And then all of a sudden, like you're looking at like, how many hours was it like somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 hours of interviews, more or less. I'm like, that's, that's more than that. Like, yeah. you know, like when you're under deadline for a, a newspaper length story or, or even a, a 1500 word story, you can do that in a day. Yeah. It'll hurt, but you can do it if need be. You can be, you can do it if pressed. I never come into a project where no matter how hard or fast or, or diligent I was about the work, there was no way I was getting it done in a time frame that I'd envisioned. So learning to sort of surrender to that and say the process is the process and it'll take as long as it takes was something that I have a, I have a far more uh, acute awareness of now than I, I certainly did three years ago. What part of the book, uh, when we get to it, when reading it, should we take special note of because we know it's especially important to you? Is, 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 does it take a turn at a spot where we know that... Uh, that, that's your little bit that maybe is a bit of struggle, maybe it's a little bit of heart, but but that really stands out for you. There's Don't a, say the whole thing, no. Sean. Come um, on. There's a couple. There's there's one where it's an interplay between Rock Carrier, who wrote The Hockey Sweater, and Nelson Reese. And it follows both of them through three stages of their lives, their childhood and their childhood with hockey, and then their big contribution to hockey in this country. And then the third one is how they view it now. So the first one is Rod Carrier. I mean, if you've seen the hockey sweater, you know, like, like what his childhood was in Saint-Justin, Quebec. The surprising thing is that Nelson Reese, the son of immigrants in Alberta, had the same experience growing up, of the same going to the rink of before school, after school, after church, before church. Um, and then they both came to Ottawa and made huge contributions to how we view hockey in this country. That, you know, Rock Carrier, I mean, I don't know if he was in Ottawa at that point, but um, wrote The Hockey Sweater, mm -hmm. which is arguably one of the most beloved short stories ever written about the sport. 
ever written about hockey in Canada. And it's still one of the most identified, you know, ties artistically between hockey and Canada. Nelson Reese was uh, a backbencher who, I mean, on top of making headlines, he, he made noise, I think, in the New York Times and to anybody who called them back in, I think it was 88, about um, making it illegal for the Kings to acquire Gretzky in a trade because he was of national significance. But then in the face of the referendum in 1993, um, he put together this bill that said hockey should be Canada's official sport. And the reasoning, on top of also getting his name in the papers again, was to say, hey, look, Quebec, we have a lot of things that are different, but guess what? We all love this game. We all have family who play this game, who love this game, who bleed this game, and we won the Summit Series together. And look at all these wonderful things that we can accomplish when we're together with hockey as the symbol. And it passed, I mean, with, with, with an important addition of making lacrosse another official sport. But, I mean... I'm not saying that that helped push the referendum vote to so Quebec stayed, but like people felt it was important enough to discuss in Parliament. Um, and then the third part is is that Rock Carrier now walks around uh, and down the rink, down the street, and sees kids getting out of these massive FU SUVs, yelling at their parents, and the parents are yelling at the kids, and he's like, "It's not a game anymore; it's a job." Mm-hmm. And Nelson Reese sitting on the patio in Ottawa saying, "Look, like." Even today, no politicians voting against hockey. But would it have the symbolic value today that it had back then? Absolutely not. And that's, that's one of the things that through three easy steps with two people, I mean, it's just two people. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it you know, represents a, you know, their two perspectives, but their two contributions to this game and how we view it in modern Canada is massive. Um, having that viewpoint was pretty eye-opening to me. Is there much that can can uh, compete with that f- eureka moment? That, that, that moment that happens in everyone's head where you're like, I've cracked this, or I understand this, or you're just listening to someone speak, and it's like there's a little mini firework that goes off in your brain, you go, oh, this is just perfect. Honestly, sitting down with Rock Carrier, yeah. fireworks went off anyway in my brain because, yeah. I mean... I'm sure you read it as a kid or you would have seen the National Film Board edition as a kid. Both I have French three different copies of it. I've give, been given it over the years. And then when my friends have kids now, yeah. that's the first gift we always give. It's just what you do. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. Like, like we read it to our kids. Mm-hmm. My, my eldest wears number nine when he plays hockey here in East York. He wears number nine and you know damn well why. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sitting down with Rock Carrier and going through and he's, He's talking just about what you just said, like the power of the book, the power of hockey that like he said, he, there's this one in, in, in that chapter we're talking about where he's at a reading in Calgary. And he said that there was a guy in the back. It was a, it was in a public library. And he's like, there's this, this big man at the back, kind of, kind of rough looking. Like he doesn't, doesn't look like he'd spend a lot of time in a public library. And he, you know, what that means is maybe Maybe he was, you know, a, an oil rigger or whatever. He didn't spend a lot of time in the library. Whatever, whatever his perception was, his, per, his assumption was that this guy didn't spend a lot of time in libraries. But he came to this. And at the end, Rock Carey fielded questions about the hockey sweater. And he could see this guy wanted to say something, but he was too shy because he's out of his element. Mm-hmm. So he said, like, sir, do you, do you want to talk about the book? And he's like, it's tough for fathers to talk to sons sometimes. And my son and I sometimes have problems talking. 
And sometimes when we do, he'll look at me and he'll say, dad, go get the book. And he's like, yeah, go get the book. And they'll sit down and they'll read the book together. And it's a shared experience that they can both identify with through hockey, through whatever, through being on a team, through disappointment, through everything that Rock Carrier explored in that, that short story that he wrote in one day, um, echoes across generations. One day. Yep. He was on deadline. It was for, um, a CBC morning show in Toronto. He was an up and coming, uh, public thinker about, uh, Quebec in Canada issues. And they said, write an essay about what Quebec wants. And he tried and it read like a lot of op-eds he'd been reading in the Gazette and Le Devoir. Um, and all of a sudden he's like, he called Toronto and said, look, I can't come up with anything. And they're like, well, it's Friday. You're on the air Monday. Click. And he's like, welp. So he wrote, you know, kind of a story of his childhood. He wrote it longhand on legal paper and he wrote it in a day. And, and I, I would really challenge you to go find another book that represents Canada on so many different levels. He, he still says there's not a political element into it. Um, but I mean, it doesn't take a lot to read into it. You know, the, the, the Toronto control of the businesses and, and its sway over Quebec and, and how Quebec viewed Toronto and all of those things. Mm-hmm. You can read into it, but he said it wasn't there. It was a story of his childhood in hockey. But I challenge you to find another short story that represents as broad a swath of the population as it does. That's the neat thing about art, though. Uh, whether it be writing or painting or film or what music or anything, is that, no, 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 we didn't set out on a journey to write something that spoke of the current political climate, but it bled out through because that's what all of our life experience had led to, and that's just how we saw the world. What I loved about the story uh, about the man in the library is that the example of him and his son was just personified by the example of the man in the library. That's the exact same thing that when in a moment where you think you have you, you aren't able to talk or share a moment together or you don't know how to exist in the same space, that was him and his son and that was again him with this group and that is again Montreal or Quebec and, and uh, Quebec and the rest of Canada. How do we use this one unifying idea that, hey, I, yes, we have a lot of issues and a lot of differences but let's remember at the core, we still have similar love. We have similar dedication, direction, relationships. So let's start here and use this as a foundation and move forward with it. This didn't make the book, but um, Rock Carrier, I'm going to call him Rock, but I also feel weird calling him Rock because he's amazing and he's a national treasure. Um, he was at the, the National Library. He was the head of the National Library. And he said he was trying to raise funds. And it's not really sexy for an MP to earmark funds for the National Library. So he had problems getting into a lot of doors, getting a lot of meetings. So he was in the archives one day and he saw that, you know, in the library, there's all these great pictures, old pictures of hockey scenes, like basically playing Irish Hurley on frozen ponds or, you know, all of these, 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 this great work that's in the basement. So he got the idea to sort of make hockey cards with this material that the, the National Library had and a little scene on the back and he put them, you know, they're five or ten to a pack mm-hmm. with the pictures from the archives and little descriptions on the back and he had people, like volunteers, um, interns, manually putting them in, in plastic wrap and he took them around, he had young staffers take them around the hill, Parliament Hill, 
and give them to MPs. And like, like that. MPs are like, where do you get these? Can I get more? Like my family has them. I've got constituents. Like talked about them at parties. Like everybody wants these cards. And then Rock's like, pulls the hook a little yeah, bit more, right? right? He's like- sets, sets the hook. Yeah. Right. He's like, well, I'd love to, but, and his word was, I have no budget. I have no budget. And that's the way he said it. And he's like, I, I can't make more cards without budget. And guess who got, guess who got some more money? Through hockey. MPs from across Canada through hockey. I've kept you for over an hour, but I do have one more question I want to ask. And it plays well with a couple of these stories you've told at the end here. Do you notice anything about yourself as a father? Two, you have two kids, yep. right? Did you notice yourself grow or change? You have to spend a year with kid, uh, with young men in their teen years. And as you said, we stripped away the helmet and the pads. And here they are. They're just 16, 17, 18-year-olds. Is there is there any part of the, the, the father, Sean, you know, being a dad that you either saw come through or or you might see a bit of an evolution there? Because the kids, being, a, being yeah. around teenagers does that. I don't have kids, but I'm like, I see myself turning into more of a fatherly figure. Why do you spend time around teenagers? Because I'm in hockey. This seems problematic. What I oh, do. oh, I see. Okay. Come on. Not like not outside the rink. Just like randomly hanging around no, teenagers. No, I don't go to the arcades. Is that like, where they hang out now? The, the arcades? End. Yeah, the arcades. Yeah. They do. They play uh, Space Invaders. Um, the kids, and this sounds dumb, but the kids have taught me stuff, like my two kids, um, about hockey. And how is, um, I never, I played house league. I was a football player in high school, a really bad one. So this is new to me that... You know, my entry point to hockey now is seeing the kids, both of them, in the rink. They're making friends. They're being physically active. They're meeting friends they don't go to school with, from other schools, from other backgrounds. Um, I mean, not as many other backgrounds as there should be, as we've talked about. But they're meeting people outside, and they're forming deep bonds. They go to tournaments. You're going swimming. You're playing mini sticks, eating pizza. You're bonding, right? And... Through house league, through select hockey, through meeting siblings, through parents forming bonds, we can now go to almost any park in our side of the city and we're going to know somebody from the rink. Our kids will have somebody to play with. We'll have somebody to talk to. And what it's really taught me is that, and that infused a lot of this book, is that we just spend a lot of time pooping on hockey. But what hockey can really do is it is, it's that drawstring that can bring everybody together. And it's not just this, this grand theory of hockey unites us all. On the grassroots level, it does. Because I meet the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker in the community that I might not cross paths with. So rather than hanging out with you know, other journalists or other people in our sphere, um, you make friends with people that, that you spend a lot of time with. And, and what's the root of that? The root of that is hockey. Mm -hmm. We find other connections, but the root, the thing that drew us together in the first place, the commonality is hockey. And, and that repeats itself in rinks, in towns, in cities, and provinces across Canada and can have that power when somebody moves from Vancouver and they land in Toronto and you find somebody with hockey, you got a friend or an easier entry point to a friend. Uh, in an age, and we spoke about you know the, on, the, the onslaught of digital mediums and platforms, in an age where it becomes easier and easier just to stay inside our home and, and communicate only over text and lessen our face-to-face -face time we have with people. And silo off. 
and silo off completely because we can surround ourselves just with the information we need and the stuff we need that that proves what we think already right people, to your point like people people were calling game of thrones the last shared communal television experience because everybody now watches crave or yeah. or netflix or whatever but like i might love barry and barry is a great show but like there's not hundred million people watching Barry, like there might've been with MASH or Game of Thrones or whatever people are going to talk about around the water cooler the next day. And so with this age that we're in, the nice thing about hockey is it reminds me of that, you know, the, 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 the small neighborhood open door policy where, you know, Paul and Tina from across the street have no problem popping in or, you know, little, little Steven, you know, is playing with, you know, Molly's kid down over. And so we bring over, you know, a couple drinks and we sit on their back patio and hockey gives us that opportunity, just that meeting point where, where we all come and in a weird way. And I don't want to really, especially to those who are of faith, I don't want to relate it to that, but it's, it's the church. It's that, it's that spot in the sense that a community can come together and we can interchange ideas and remind ourselves that, Hey, a little bit of this face to face time is important. It wouldn't it be great if we found a way to make it more inclusive for everybody because then we can all share in that again. And I want to leave it on that point because it's brilliant. You're a writer, aren't you? Because man, that's good. Sean, thank you. I appreciate you coming all the way to our East end office. I, um, I hope you're able to come back. I had other things. I have like hockey cards here. I had all these little things planned. I'm like, just in case we need stuff to talk about, I can chuck this in. And I didn't at all. I appreciate you walking me through the process as well, especially since I've never written a book and I find it interesting. It feeds my brain. We like to end the podcast the same way each and every time because uh, I believe that we can be, it's very easy to be turned off from making big change. Uh, because everything can seem so large. Taking on a new project, taking on a book can seem almost bigger than what anything we're able to do. But the idea I think about a lot is that big change all starts in small increments, making little changes. And the little smallest thing we can do to ourselves, and it's probably something that you hopefully tell your kids, is to eat your vegetables. So... As we wrap up here, uh, from Sean, thank you. From myself, from Dylan, who's on the sliders. From Sean, who obviously helps all the time getting this podcast together and out. Please, please, please be good to yourself and... Eat your vegetables? He's got it. Eat your vegetables. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Thank you.